here at Intel Corporation and lives in uh, Hillsboro, Oregon, real close to here. Annabelle? Okay. Thank you very much for the introduction. Is the volume okay? No? Pardon me? Okay, so I'll try and speak up. <laughs> okay, in the, uh, here's the remote. Um, so I will be continuing along this theme of energy and energy use. And um, this still doesn't look very well focused, does it? No, you probably can't do it. Okay. 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 Well, <laughs> we'll go with this. So um, I'd like to put this up as kind of a provocative question about our internet carbon footprint. I don't know how many of you have an avatar um, or know what an avatar is. Um, there's an online game, uh, Second Life, where you can build an alter ego for yourself. You, you build an, an image, and here's an example of um, some people's um, identities that they build online, and you can actually live the second virtual life. And several months ago, someone wrote a very provocative article on a blog on the internet where he did a calculation, and by his calculation, it showed that um, the average energy use for an avatar, so this is simply an identity on the internet, nothing real, is equivalent to the average energy use of someone who lives in Brazil. Now, this created a whole lot of discussion um, about his assumptions and calculations. So I'm, I'm not saying that his calculations were absolutely correct, but I think it just starts us thinking along the lines that we don't often see the Internet when you go online and you pull up a web page, you do an online purchase, as something that actually consumes energy. So. He was, I think, just wanting to start this conversation and say, yes, you do consume energy when you're on the Internet. So what I'll go through this afternoon is a brief description of how energy is used and how much energy we're talking about. And then I'll focus specific on a data center. Um, I'll explain what a data center is in the introductory section. And then specifically go into power distribution within a data center and talk a little bit about some of the state-of-the-art technologies in this area. So here is an example of um, what happens when you're at home and you want to uh, pull up a website. And I'm sorry the LED doesn't work very well, but over on the left, we have our home PC that's running. We'd like to pull up a specific website. We have a router in the home that connects with routers and network switches in what we normally use the word the internet for, and this will then ensure that your request for the website is routed to exactly the right data center to get that information and bring it all the way back to your home. Inside of the data center, there are servers. Um, also on the left, I've, I've introduced the nomenclature we call the home computer the client, because you're the client, you'd like a service, and this computer, a server is pretty much a powerful PC without a screen and a keyboard. 
um, so it's just the main box of your computer, is sitting in the data center. It contains the information you want, and it replies to you. Um, and then just, so that was pulling up a web page. Other times that we access um, this service um, and use energy as credit card transactions. Um, Visa has a data center that hosts their servers with information. Phone calls nowadays, voice over IP. So if you use Vonage or if you have Comcast and they have a voice over IP function, it all works on this principle of going back to a data center um, to have a computer service your request. Of course, email or online photo archiving. So in that case, it'll be more memory that you're using out in these data centers. And online gaming um, related to that first example I had. So how much energy are we talking about? So to put this in perspective, um, a home computer, let's say it uses about 150 watts. 350 watt power supply is fairly typical for a home computer. So let's say we use about a half of of that, so 0.15 kilowatt. A large data center, um, which is more and more common to instead of building several small, small data centers, people build very large data centers. So over 5,000 square foot and hundreds to thousands of servers sitting in the data center can be highly variable, but on the order of five megawatt or 5,000 kilowatt. So a much higher order of magnitude of, of energy use. So if we step inside of the data center, um, we started with the server on the left. So these servers are stacked in a rack. Um, there are different form factors, but if you use the specific form factor, you can get about 50 servers sitting in a rack. And then you start spreading them out in rows. Um, and again, very variable based on the size and the layout of the facility, but you could have 10 or 20 of these racks um, sitting in a row. So we're starting to talk very quickly about a very high number of servers. Um, example at the bottom, let's say 500 watts per server. Um, so that gives you 25 kilowatts in a rack or 500 kilowatts, half a megawatt burning in this row of servers that you're walking through. And for this, so just 10 of these rows would get you to the five megawatt power level, and that's 10,000 servers sitting there. Um, and I really liked the uh, article, especially the language, Behold the Server Farm, Glorious Temple of the Information Age. <laughs> this is from a Fortune magazine in uh, August of 2006, and the only picture they you know, showed here is the wall these are high security areas. Um, you have very few people in there whose computers, but they have walls, they have cameras, they have uh, clearance areas. Um, so industry um, economists are starting to take notice of what's happening um, with these large energy sinks being built. And then the US government um, responded. Um, so a public law was passed at the end of 2006, um, which required the EPA to study and promote the use of energy-efficient computer servers in the United States. Um, so the EPA started to work on this. A lot of uh, meetings were convened. A lot of work was done. And then in August of 2007, they issued a report, 
And this report is available for free download um, from the internet. Um, I have the reference down below. So I'll just pull out a few key findings from that and look at that in a little bit more detail. So one of them is that U.S. data centers consume a growing portion of the U.S. energy supply due to growing demand for the services they provide. So this should come as no surprise as all of us use more and more email, um, photo archiving, um, all of these services. And um, the numbers are the data centers use 61 billion kilowatt hours of electricity in 2006, or 1.5% of all U.S. electricity consumption, double that consumed in 2000. So this is a small percentage number. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I feel, well, why am I working on a problem that's only 1.5%? But, you know, every percent that we can work on um, will help us. We have to, to take every little bit we can. But it is especially the rate of growth of energy consumption that is alarming Congress and others as they look at this particular problem. Um, and then to put that in a different perspective, um, it is only one and a half, so projected to, to go to 3%. But if you estimate the peak load, it's about 7 million kilowatts, and that's equivalent to the output of 15 base load power plants. So small percentage number, but still a fair um, number of power plants. Um, so the upsetting data here was that based on current trends, the energy consumed will continue to grow by 12% per year, so very high growth rate, and at this rate, the total demand will double by 2011. So that would require an additional 10 power plants to just get your peak load capability online. And I also put in a, an estimate that we did, this is not from their report, um, of about 70 million metric tons of atmospheric um, carbon dioxide. And now I want to start focusing um, on one of the other key findings where they uh, found that the power and cooling infrastructure that supports the IT equipment in data centers accounts for 50% of the total consumption. So not only is it a growing load, but there's also an inefficiency to deal with in the, the power and cooling infrastructure. So let's take a look. Oh, sorry, before we, we uh, look at the power and cooling infrastructure, this is the graph that was produced in the report showing annual electricity use. Um, black line is um, actual data, um, and then they start projecting. And I want to draw your attention to the one line that says current efficiency trend scenario and then there's an improved and then best practice scenario. So we'll look at what current is, what best practice is, and then there's also a state-of-the-art scenario. Um, and I'll put some numbers behind this. You can see the biggest bang for your buck is to go from current efficiency to best practice, but they'll, then we'll also look how to improve that um, somewhat more. So now to look at the power and cooling infrastructure. So we took a look at the servers and how you form these rows of servers doing the work. But we also need um, some lighting in the room, and that is at the top, um, the lighting and the ballast. It's a very small load in a data center. It's only about you know, 1 to 2% of the total energy, so we won't really focus there. Um, but all of the energy that goes into the data center 
generates heat. It generates bits, information flows back and forth, but you're, you're literally just burning up their energy. You're not turning anything, you're not moving anything, you're not making anything. So all of that heat has to be uh, cooled to keep the computer room at a temperature that the equipment can withstand and also a temperature where humans can work on them. So in the bottom, uh, these just show that these facilities have large chiller plants. You need a pump and then you need the air conditioner units within the building itself. Um, I'm not going to focus in detail there. I'm an electrical engineer, so won't go into detail, but just um, recall that that equipment is there and we'll focus in more detail on this electrical power distribution. I did just want to, want to show you a picture. Um, this is an example of an Intel data center facility. So it gives you a feeling for the server cabinets. This is a two-floor design. It's not, a, it's not very common to have two floors, but the overall floor space usage is fairly typical. So you see the servers at the top but it becomes a small area compared to everything that has to support it. You have the air conditioner units on the side, on the top, the blue lines, and on the bottom you have, we'll get into the details here in a bit, on the uninterruptible power supplies, your transformers, and your power distribution units. And then outside of this building would be your chillers and your pumps. So a lot of infrastructure just to support these computers sitting in a room um, doing our work for us. I'll step through um, the, the one-line diagram at the top, and I'll go right to left. So at the end of the day, we're using silicon. We're using microprocessors and memory and other um, electronic components. And they need a voltage on the order of about one volt DC. Um, and so we need to create the specific voltage that they want. And that is done by power electronic converters, um, a voltage regulator, steps down from 12 volt DC to 1 volt DC. The 12 volt um, DC is generated by a power supply uh, that takes in uh, 208 volts AC is the industrial voltage. So similar to 110 volt AC in our homes. Um, the 208 volt AC is stepped down from a transformer. So 480 volt AC is the higher power, um, higher voltage distribution industrially. And because of the critical nature of data centers, you will almost always find an uninterruptible power supply. Um, you may have small-scale UPSs for your home computers. These are large units that will ensure that even if you lose the grid, even if you have an outage, you can continue to operate because it has a battery bank, um, sometimes more modern equipment like flywheels, but mostly a, a battery bank that will supply the power until um, the diesel generators can kick on and keep you online. Um, so for Visa, for example, if they have one minute of downtime, it is tens of millions of dollars that they lose. So th these are highly critical facilities. Um, so each of these blocks has an inefficiency associated with it. So in the bottom half, what I showed, let's say, for example, you need 100 watt at the silicon. Um, your voltage regulator will have losses in it. Your server fans will take power. Your power supply, UPS, each of them will have an inefficiency. So but by the time you get back to the total power that's needed with uh, current technology, you'll need almost three times as much 
power at the input than what is actually required at the silicon load. Um, and when I speak about current technology, this is not the best technology that's available. This is just the technology that people typically are using today. You know, it's, a, it's a very much a cost-driven um, uh, economic model. So a couple of observations here. The power and cooling overhead is about 65%. So that's the outside equipment. And if you look at the power conversion uh, distribution loss, it's about 50%. So, so the one thing we can do is simply go to best practice. This means buying more efficient equipment. This is equipment that is available. Um, there's nothing new that has to be done. You simply have to um, install this equipment. Um, I have some of my assumptions on the right in terms of about a five megawatt facility, the number of servers, um, and what the cooling efficiency is that I'm assuming. So you can see that we can very easily step up from about a 50% efficiency to almost a 70% efficiency on the power conversion alone. And using an average cost here of 6.2 cents per kilowatt hour, that would be a savings of almost a million dollars annually for this facility just by putting in more efficient equipment. And it is so hard in this industry to um, move the industry towards more efficient equipment. They are very um, much focused on first cost because you can take these numbers and you can show them that they can get a payback within one or two years on these equipment um, by their energy cost savings but there's very often a disconnect. The person who buys the equipment doesn't talk to the person who pays the electric bills. And, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Um, so, so there's tremendous gains to be made by simply buying better equipment. And then I wanted to show you a couple of um, state-of-the-art technologies in power distribution that are um, being looked at today and, and studied. One of them is a higher voltage AC system. So if you look at the two diagrams, you'll notice the only thing that's missing is the transformer in the orange box. So typically we use 480 volts AC distribution and then you step down to 208 volts AC. Um, the reason for the transformer is um, when you go from three phase to single phase, you end up with 277 volts AC if you simply try to use a single phase from the three phase system. The standard range for power supplies only go up to 264. So that, that's an industry standard, so you can't directly tap into it. So the proposal is to build an uninterruptible power supply that outputs 400 volts AC. If you tap single phase, it's 230, which is within the range of 264. So um, what would be required here is a new product. There's no new technology. Europe happens to use 400 volts AC. So we can look at Europe, we can use some of their designs, but the products need to be um, made available and tested within the United States. The other system is a 400 volt direct current system. And here you will see that we've lost many more blocks. So if we look again at the top picture in a typical system, you'll take the 400 volt AC, you're converted to DC, direct current for battery storage, then you convert it back to alternating current for distribution. 
Within the power supply, the blue box, you convert from alternating current to 400 volt DC um, within the, the power supply today, and then it's stepped down to 12 volt DC. The battery voltage is on the same order of magnitude as 400 volt DC, so you can simplify the system by simply saying, instead of converting from the battery voltage back to alternating current and then back to direct current, lose those two AC to DC blocks, and you have a much simpler system with fewer conversion stages. So if we look at these two systems, both of their advantages come from the fact that you remove conversion stages. So in the 400 volt AC system, you remove a transformer. Your power supply is also a little bit more efficient at 230 volt AC in. In the 400 volt DC system, we lost three conversion stages, so you're more efficient. You also use fewer components, and again, the 400 volt DC system uses the the fewest because you lose three stages. We have lower component costs, we have a reduced equipment footprint, and we also use fewer natural resources. We simply manufacture fewer parts. Um, so especially rare metals that's used in electronic equipment. Um, 400 volt DC also has advantages related to reliability improvements because you lose converters. It simplifies wiring. You don't have to balance the three phases. And it provides more efficient connection to renewable energy sources. So if you look at photovoltaic cells, it generates in DC. Um, fuel cells also generate direct current. And if you have a wind generator with a variable frequency drive, which is the most efficient way to use wind energy, you will also have a, a DC bus available. And this is a specific use that was highlighted in the EPA report, that this would be a model that fits very nicely. So now to look at what more gains you get from going to state-of-the-art technologies. Um, in agreement with the graph produced by the EPA, your biggest jump, the 17%, is simply using best practice, and then you get an additional approximately 4% efficiency, which for the example system data center that I use would be about another $150,000 annual um, savings in energy costs. What do we need to go to state of the art? The first is market pull. Um, we need people in the marketplace to see the value of these technologies and to start implementing that so that you can get the volume of production up. For 400 volt AC, you need a UPS to be manufactured. Again, it's not new technology. It's simply making a new product. And also education on how to do the distribution without the transformer, but we have Europe as a model that they do this already. For 400 volt DC, one of the first challenges is to get agreement. Um, I use the term 400 volt DC, uh, but there are people in Europe that have already started building systems at 350 volts DC. In Japan, they were at 300 volts DC because of some government regulations. They're really working hard to change that so they can go up to 375, and we like 380. Um, been a lot of conversation with European and Japanese uh, counterparts on trying to establish one standard. In terms of servers, the only thing that has to change is the power supply. We need no changes on the computer side. Um, the 400 volt DC uninterruptible power supply will be new to the data center environment, but they are used in industrial, especially mining applications. 
And then you need things like connectors. Uh, our wall plugs, for example, they're all rated, you all certified for 110 or 220, 480 volts AC. You simply need connectors that are available for 400 volts DC. Some of them exist and are rated as such in Europe. They're simply not UL listed in the United States. And then also education for local authorities because the U.S. National Electric Code, which all of these buildings have to meet before they can be turned on, covers up to 600 volts DC, but it's open to interpretation. It's not as well defined as the alternating current system. And so I'll show you uh, three um, demonstration systems that have been built for 400 volts DC, and then we'll wrap it up. In 2006, uh, we collaborated with Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and many other industry uh, partners. This was actually hosted at Sun um, down in California. So we built a um, small system. It had a traditional AC distribution on the right. It had uh, that modified to 400 volt DC on the left. And we also had 400 volt DC lights. As a very quick uh, side note, uh, you can get up to um, Philips has a 400 volt DC lighting product. They give you 15 years uh, warranty on that light because you remove components from the electronic part of it versus the standard five years. So with this system, and we worked at 380 volts DC on this system, uh, we were able to show a 7% energy consumption savings and we demonstrated that servers operate just fine from 380 volts DC. That was a main, one of the main objectives. Even though you can show it to people on paper, look, it will work, um, the operating system helped. And the final report is available on the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab website. Um, for Intel, we built a smaller scale system. Um, in the photograph, the red Orange light is the AC system, the blue light is the DC system. Showed very similar results, six, eight percent savings at different workloads. And then NTT facilities, they are the largest telephone operator in Japan. Um, they are building a system, the photograph I, I show here is a high power quality substation. So they have the standard utility coming in, they have fuel cells, they have solar panels. Um, so this is in operation. It supplies power to a university and a hospital in the city of Sendai. And we work with them in the blue box I have bottom right, uh, where they wanted to demonstrate servers operating on direct current. They started with a 48-volt DC system and then moved to a 300-volt DC system as they became aware of some of the um, servers we had available. And their next step will be a 375-volt DC distribution or demonstration system at the HE Institute of Technology. So this is ongoing and operating. In summary then, the internet, internet use requires data centers to be online 24 seven. Uh, currently data center energy use is estimated to be one and a half percent of the US total um, electricity use. And if we continue as we build data centers today, we double that use by 2011, requiring up to 10 new power plants. Our power and cooling infrastructure adds about 60% overhead, so there is room for improvement. We showed significant savings by just going to best practice and some state-of-the-art technologies, and of those, we believe that 400 volt DC is the most promising. Thank you very much. We have a couple minutes for questions. If uh, Lynn Billman's, Lynn Billman, yeah, you get, go ahead. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do it. Okay. So. The, okay. The, Um, the question was, um, how sensitive are these numbers to the improvements you would get because the, the chip, the integrated circuit performance is so much better? Unfortunately, the numbers I show take into account the improvements in integrated circuit performance. So the improvement in terms of the amount of work you can get at a certain power level has been a tenfold improvement in the last you know, generation or two of integrated circuit improvements. The problem is our demand for services on the internet is growing faster than that. So it is accounted for in here. There was one gentleman at the very back of, yeah, there we go, sir. Solar state devices typically run on variable voltage. So what happens when a 400 volt disconnect is built into the building and gets to the server? Um, the question was uh, that silicon devices require a very low voltage, around one volt, and what would happen if 400 volt DC would happen to reach um, the silicon devices? So um, I'll start by pointing out that we're not doing anything new with that 400 volt DC. If you take a power supply in your desktop computer at home today, there is a 400 volt DC bus in there today. We're not introducing a new voltage. You take the 110 volt AC, it's stepped up to 400 volt DC, and then it gets stepped down to one volt. So it's not a new problem, it's being done today. But in direct your answer to your question, it'll blow up to smithereens if it gets Th through. Thank you very much, we're out of time. Okay, thank you. The one question I don't have a good feel for